Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message. Um, poor Andrew, though. Uh, he said, what, uh, what text would you like me to read to open up the meeting? And I said, read Psalm 137, the whole thing. Knowing that the second to last verse is, blessed are those who give you payback, Babylon. And then another beatitude that you probably didn't know was in the Bible, blessed are those who kill your babies. Um, Now, here's why we read Psalm 137 to start out. And that is that we're doing this uh, series on the book of Daniel. It's 11 weeks long, this series. Uh, The book of Daniel is about what was life like in Babylon after the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, its walls had been broken down, the temple had been completely sacked, uh, and people were carried away against their will um, into exile. They, they, um, uh, They were victims of the most brutal oppression. And Psalm 137, do you remember what Andrew started to read? By the waters of Babylon... We sat down when we remembered Zion, which is the hill on which Jerusalem is built. And the waters of Babylon, that's the Tigris and the Euphrates. These are rivers. Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. That's uh, that's where Babylon was. Um, And so there are these people that have been carried forcibly away. Every single one of them have either personally suffered violence or they've seen their loved ones be subject to to violence, right? And um, uh, this psalm, Cody, if you'll help me out, asks a question in verse four, and that is, how how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land? Now, whether the psalm was written while they were in exile or whether it's a song that looks back to the exile, verse four is asking a question that they presume the answer is no way, can't be done, right? Just can't be done. How can we sing Yahweh's song in a strange and a foreign land? Um, and in fact, they, this, the, the whole psalm is, you know, is a lament. And they are so broken up, that having been victims of oppression, they're now actively praying for payback. And they're, uh, this is part of what oppression does to the oppressed, is it makes them either commit violence or long to see violence committed against their oppressors. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that Psalm 137 is actually so instructive for us because it tells us that the oppressor bears the responsibility not only for the oppressor's actions, but for the result that it causes in the hearts of the people who have been oppressed. So when we think of Daniel's story, which is an Old Testament book, we should also think that the context was that almost everybody that had been carried away into exile was like, can't do it, can't sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land. And then from Daniel and his friends come a minority report. And the minority report is, we can sing the Lord's song anywhere because the Lord's kingdom is everywhere. So one of the things that we learn from Daniel is we can sing God's song 
anywhere because God's kingdom is everywhere. So they can be forgiven uh, uh, thinking like how we just can't do this. But part of what Daniel tells us is how can we live uh, victoriously even in the midst uh, of oppression. Um, uh, Daniel, by the way, uh, is a kingdom of God book from start to finish. Uh, Do you know the subject that Jesus, New Testament, do you know the subject Jesus talked about more than any other subject? Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than a hundred times between the four gospels. By far, his number one topic was the kingdom of God. And now think of these connections to Daniel. What have we seen like in chapter two? The Nebuchadnezzar, this crazy, maybe possibly even bipolar, very charismatic king, has a crazy dream about the kingdoms of the earth, head of gold, chest of silver, middle of bronze, feet or legs of iron and feet of clay and iron mixed together. And Daniel interprets the dream and says, and I beheld a rock cut, not with human hands, but a rock hewn out of a mountain, smashes this this statue and from the rubble grows the rock, which is the kingdom which covers the whole world. Daniel's book is pointing us towards the reality of the kingdom of God. And that was Jesus's number one topic. So it's not just, uh, I mean, it is historical. I take it as uh, as historical. But more than that, Daniel is, is paving the way for the king, the true king, the one king, the king who shows all other kings or queens how to, uh, how to rule, right? Uh, Daniel's a kingdom book from start to finish, um, It's as current as the inbreaking of God's kingdom, not only in Jesus' time, but the inbreaking of God's kingdom here and now. Are there rulers around the world right now who think they can do whatever they want? Are there politicians in our own country who think they will never be called into account? Uh, Are there state and local leaders uh, filled with pride and contempt for those people that they should be serving? Or what about me? Like, you know, in my little kingdom, which admittedly is a very small kingdom, do I want to rule it over anybody for whom uh, I have authority or responsibility? Um, So if you want to understand how God's kingdom works in everyday life, you study the book of Daniel, right? So uh, that's what we're going to do. It's an 11-week study. I have been called on to do Daniel chapter 3, and I know what you're thinking. I can see it, like, right there on your visage. I can see it. Daniel chapter 3, you're wondering, Ray, what did you do for summer vacation? So I'll tell you. Here's what I did for summer vacation. My family and I, I lived with my wife and two of our three children. We, we were angry at one of them, so we left him behind. Um, my wife and two of my children, we visited uh, Paris uh, and the uh, Palace of Versailles because, you know, whenever I'm in Paris, I am always visit the Palace of Versailles. Well, never been there before. I saw it. It was amazing. Versailles, right? 17th century, built by Louis XIV. It's magnificent. 
Everything is, is gilded and encrusted with gold. Uh, the, the ceilings are not 10-foot ceilings, not 15. They're like 30-foot ceilings. The, the floors are made of inlaid wood that causes you to just go, oh my gosh, look at that floor. And then when you finish looking at the floors, you look at the ceiling, and there's artwork in the ceiling that could be in any museum in the world. And you go, this place is amazing. Until you realize that King Louis XIV taxed his people the length and the breadth of the country. Hard-working people who dug potatoes out of the ground for a living or, or tended the, the vines to, to be, to, for wine. These people were taxed so that the king could have a grand palace so that the king could have a grand palace. Uh, I checked this on the interwebs, and you know they don't let you put it on the internet unless it's true. Um, uh, the current value of Versailles and its grounds, the gardens and all, the current value is in excess of $50 billion, right? So that's what I did for summer vacation. And uh, the connection, the point is, is that kings are gonna do what kings are gonna do. They're gonna build a kingdom on the backs of their subjects. Um, they might say that they're doing it for the glory of their country. That's what Louis XIV said. I am France, he said, probably with a French accent. I am France. And so for the glory of France, I live in this palace, right? Poppycock, horse hockey, doo-doo. He just had this ego that just wouldn't quit. And he wanted to live in the most magnificent palace in all of Europe to show all those other kings and queens in Europe who was the best king, right? But, you know, there's this justification. And this is the way of the world, another New Testament connection. Here's what Jesus says about the leaders of the world, whether it's like a, a, a CEO of a company or the, or the boss of a, of a, of a small, uh, small business, uh, whether it's a teacher in a classroom uh, or, you know, or a mayor in some town. Here's what Jesus consistently said about leadership, and that is, we have the tendency to get leadership wrong. And indeed, what did Jesus say? He said, the leaders of this world lord it over their subjects, but the greatest in God's kingdom is the servant of all. So he said, I'm among you. He's the king of kings. I'm among you as one who serves. So the human tendency is to get leadership wrong. So today, while we do uh, Daniel chapter three, uh, I have three topics that I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about, thank you, Cody. Uh, I wanna talk about what kings do. I wanna talk about what kingdom people do. And then I wanna conclude with God is with us, okay? What kings do, what kingdom people do, and the fact, the reality that God is with us. So Daniel chapter three, you got this guy Nebuchadnezzar. Honestly, now it's a historical figure. Certainly he really did exist. Um, probably was like as charismatic as all get out. Um, he's maybe one of the most colorful uh, characters in antiquity. And um, he's an archetype as well for all earthly kings. And all earthly kings at least engage in three practices. And those three practices are preoccupation with self, pride that just won't quit, and power to keep other people down. What do kings do? 
Well, they do the three Ps, preoccupation with self, pride that won't quit, and power to keep other people down. And um, uh, let's talk about preoccupation for self, and this will serve as our review from last week. You know, the thing about doing a series is, is that we could spend like all of today just reviewing the first three messages, right? But last week we covered uh, Daniel chapter 2, and yeah, that's where he had the dream uh, Nebuchadnezzar did of this, this statue that we talked about, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. And only Daniel could interpret the dream. And in that interpretation, Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel says, he, God, God has made you, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler over all the inhabited world and has even put the wild animals and birds under your control, which would be a neat trick. You, O king, are the head of gold. But then Daniel goes on to say, but after your kingdom comes to an end, comma, and then there will rise another kingdom, right? Head of gold, chest, silver, right? But... Uh, can we just go backwards one slide, Cody? Right there. You are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, yes, I like that. I'm the head of gold. And it's my contention in chapter two that although Daniel interpreted the rest of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar checks out on the head of gold. Yes, of all the kingdoms in all the world, in all of history up to that point, I am the head of gold. I think Nebuchadnezzar was like, that's all I need. And isn't this a human tendency? God is speaking through Daniel, chapter 2. God is speaking through Daniel and giving Nebuchadnezzar a glimpse of the next centuries to come and the proclamation of a kingdom that will never end. And Nebuchadnezzar's on, I am the head of gold, Right? So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Chapter three, he builds a golden statue. Uh, and it's funny because on the internet, like all the statues look like a man like this. I don't know why. Like it's like everybody just painted the same painting. Statue, guy like this. Presumably made of gold, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, it's not just a statue. Oh, no, 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 no. It's 90 feet high. 90 feet high. I looked this up. Uh, 90 feet is either six or seven story building. Can you, a, a, a statue of a gold dude, 90 feet high, six or seven. Heck, in all of Taylor County, we don't have a building that is six or seven stories tall. I think, I think this is right. I think it's either four or five floors is the tallest we've got. So this statue would, uh, would rival any church steeple, hmm. um, would rival any church steeple. And he builds it, right? Um, this is the preoccupation with self. Uh, this is what uh, the king does. All right. Am I going to do the rest of this without notes? No, I'm not. They're there. Um, so he's preoccupied with himself. He has an ego, his pride that just won't quit. He builds a 90-foot statue. And then in chapter 3, he issues this command. Whenever you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the pipe and the harps and the other musical instruments, uh, memo to uh, uh, Glenn, our worship uh, leader, we need a bigger band. We need a bigger band, right? Whenever you hear the worship band, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's 
golden statue. So this is the power part. You hear it, what are you going to do? You're going to bow down. That's what you're going to do. And if you don't bow down, what happens? Now, isn't it interesting that you can use power to force people to bow, but anyone forced to bow longs simply to just stand up in peace. That's really, you know, they're, so physically their bodies are down, but where's their heart? Maybe not even defiant. They just long to be, be able to stand up and be left to live their own life, but not kings. They're preoccupied with themselves. They've got pride that doesn't quit and power, power to force people. This is part one. That's what kings do. Got it? There'll be a quiz later. No, wait, that's at CU. There won't be a quiz later, okay? Uh, what kingdom people do, the second part, uh, the, what kingdom people do. Now, oddly enough, in Daniel chapter three, we don't see Daniel. Where's Daniel? He's like in Pensacola for fall break or spring break or whatever. You know, it's, you know after a hard day of interpreting the king's dreams in chapter two, I think I'm gonna go to the Redneck Riviera for a little while. But what do we end up with? We end up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, still there. Now, fortunately, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you, you know how to remember those names, right? Remember it this way, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. And you'll get it. So you got my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. They're still there. Fortunately, however, they are fans of Tom Petty. You know Tom Petty? No, I won't back down. So it's all the singing I'm going to do right there. Tom Petty, I won't back down. Uh, Pastor Adam has given us references to such uh, musical superstars as Meatloaf right, and my morning jacket. So my contribution to the Spotify playlist, are you listening, Vineyard Leadership, to the Spotify playlist that's based on Daniel is Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. Uh, here's the very first verse. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Tom Petty, great songwriter, right? Uh, well, uh, Rack, Shaq, and Benny, they, they're fans of Tom Petty, right? So uh, can you imagine this? I don't know how many people show up for the dedication of the statue. It had to have been a few. Let's just say 5,000 people. I don't know, right? But if 5,000 people start to bow, and I mean, you know, we're talking like that good old Middle East bow, on your knees, chest on the ground, hands like this, and then out of 5,000 people, there's three dudes who stay standing. Do you think they would <clears throat> stand out just a little bit? Uh, there would be no avoiding them, right? And um, when, when Adam did chapter one, he pointed to the fact that you can draw a direct line from uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's actions in chapter one to their ability to stand under immense peer pressure in chapter three. Do you, you, you remember from chapter one, right? Uh, they're gonna keep kosher. They are not going to eat non-kosher food. They're the ones who said, give us the vegetables, give us the water. Boring. Give us the vegetables, give us the water. Uh, and, uh, and, and Adam's the one who said, now we can draw a line from chapter one to chapter three. Before you will end up being faithful in the big things, the path to faithfulness in the big things is faithfulness in the 
the little things. They had already set their boundaries as to like what I will eat, what I will and won't do. And just like somebody might work out with a three-pound dumbbell uh, and just, you know, do like a gazillion reps, it's the everyday repetitions. It's the everyday repetitions that finally give you the strength to stand for the big things when you need to. And in this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are our examples. They stood together. There was no hiding. Um, And uh, it's instructive for us as well that uh, his friends responded to the king's exalted language with like just really plain speaking. So that passage that we've already looked at, uh, the, the lute and the zither and the lyre and everybody will bow down. When you read that, it's almost, I mean, whoever writes this down is a brilliant storyteller. It's almost a caricature of the way fancy people in highfalutin positions talk. And you, did you notice, because I know you read this, right, in preparation for church today. Um, uh, did you notice how often it's repeated and how exalted the language is? But then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just simply say, we won't back down, right? Simple, one-syllable words. No, thank you. Hard pass. Um, You can contrast their plain speaking with the exalted trappings of what authority tries to surround itself with. And the more the trappings, the less the actual authority. That's just a little life hack for you. The more the trappings, it's like, oh, uh, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right, in Wizard of Oz, and you got the smoke and you got the fire going on. Uh, Jesus talked about this too. He said, simply let your yes be yes, or your no be no, and anything beyond that comes from the evil one. So not only do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resist, but they resist with both courtesy and with very plain speaking, which makes... Nebuchadnezzar's so angry, he says, that's it. Heat up the furnace. (coughs) Heat up the furnace to seven times, uh, you know, as hot uh, as it is. Uh, These guys presented a threat to Nebuchadnezzar. They presented a threat to what he perceived as his legitimacy, right? Um, And they presented a threat to his ability to intimidate people. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm an extremely old person and I've had like 59 different jobs. And a long time ago, I had a boss, and I'm, this, is, this is not like, you know, silly talk. This is true. I had a boss who said, listen, when you clock in, when you clock in, I own you. I don't want your opinion. I just want you to do what I say. Now, this was in America back then in the 20th century, when you clock in, I own you. Newsflash, Emancipation Proclamation, 19th century, slavery ain't no more. But what does the boss say? When you clock in, I own you. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? You will bow down or I'll use my force to make you bow down. And then three people, when they resist, they're actually also threatening not only his legitimacy, but they're threatening his ability to continue to, um, to intimidate. 
there's an Old Testament scholar I really admire. I so much recommend. Any chance you're in a, a secondhand bookstore, you should, uh, and you see a title by Walter Brueggemann, you should buy it and just say, I'll get it, I'll read it later. Walter Brueggemann. Uh, And here's what he says. He says that the story of Daniel and his three friends is the story of hope in the midst of a situation where people might be tempted to give up hope. He says this. He says, hopeless people feel they have no choice but to conform. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego represent a radical hope a hope informed by a kingdom that fills the whole world and will never end. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are practitioners of hope. Now, Brueggemann knows that Rakshak and Benny are fully aware that A, Babylon has totally kicked Judah's butt, broke down the walls, destroyed the temple, has already killed a lot of people, and that the king could certainly do whatever he wants, throw them into the fiery furnace. But their hope was not in their circumstances. Their hope, they carried their hope into their circumstances. Does that make sense? Their hope was not based on their circumstances. They had a hope based on the kingdom that never ends, and they carried that hope into their circumstances. Their response to the king takes into account the possibility of no rescue, right? King, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, I won't back down, right? And I, and I love this because they take into account the reality They still stake their claim on the hope in the unseen and they live in the tension that it could break either way. They've already lost family members. They've already lost friends. They know that um, uh, the outcome is far from certain. So, okay. Kings, what do they do? Preoccupied with self, pride, and power. Kingdom people, they have placed their hope in a kingdom that is not made with human hands, a kingdom that will last forever. And then the last business that we get in in Daniel chapter three is one of the most beautiful pictures of God with us. Wow, this is a New Testament connection. Hey, Mary, you shall bear a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means Christmas time, everybody. Emmanuel means God with us, right? Or Jesus, the resurrected Lord, who says, go into all the world, share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. (coughs) Share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and behold, I am with you, even until the end of the age. This is who God is. He's the God who is with us. Kings throw their people into the fire, but the high king of heaven goes into the fire with his people. This is the difference between worldly leadership and heavenly leadership. Kings will throw their people into the fire. The king of heaven will go with, their, with his people into the fire. And uh, this is so important. A mature disciple understands that God does not promise to keep us from the fire. He promises to be with us in the fire. God does not promise to keep us from the fire. God promises to be with us in the fire.
And do you know how you can tell when a preacher man thinks what he just said is important? He repeats it again. God does not promise to keep us from the fire, but he does promise to be with us in the fire. And that is certainly the case here because what's going to happen? They're going to get thrown into the fire. This furnace, uh, again, and how could the internet lie, was probably like shaped like a beehive. And so it had like a top that was open and that's where you throw the humans in. And then down at the bottom would have been a cutout. Uh, they did not a window, but a cutout so you could see in. So you got Rackshack and Benny on the top. They're going to get thrown in. And you've got Nebuchadnezzar and all of the audience with their popcorn waiting to watch them hit the bottom of the furnace and to burn to death, right? And uh, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, like, wait a minute. I thought we threw three in the fire. Yes, O king. Well, why is it that I see four in the fire? And the fourth one looks to be like one of the gods. This is the only language he has. So he uses it. This is an amazing thing. And um, so not careful not to get singed, you know. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out from there. Isn't this interesting? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out. Where's the fourth person go? Uh, my theory is at the top, by the way. Uh, who knows? Um, and uh, the king is absolutely amazed. So here is our task as we study Daniel in the 21st century. It's not just an historical curiosity. It is an instruction for us to look for God in the fire. What are you facing in your life? Whatever I have come up against that I find intractable, unreasonable, unfair, and completely beyond my control. And what Daniel is teaching us is look for God in the fire. You know that commercial that plays ad nauseum, What's in Your Wallet? Well, here's the commercial here today. What is your fire? And are we training ourselves to say, I don't know what the outcome might be, but I will look for God in the fire because that's where the promise is. Oh, to live like that. I don't know what the outcome would be, but I am determined to find him in the fire. Okay, now this is cheesy, but I want to illustrate what I just said. Okay, so would you repeat after me, God is with us. So now I'm going to read something, and it's going to be call and response. I read, and your response is? Yeah, and you, like, you know, feel free to get into it as much as you want. My friends, in our plenty or in our poverty, in our faith or in our faltering, in our rescue or our ruin, in our blessing or in our blight. Yes, that's right. In the cure or in the cancer. In our deliverance or in our death. Amen. God is with us. What's in your fire? What is your fire? Um, now, here's the curiosity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm sure they wanted to be delivered from the fire. And I'm sure as they felt, felt the ground 
give way beneath their feet and that crazy fall in, into the furnace. They thought, well, that's not happening, right? They would have looked at deliverance as being the last minute reprieve, right? But the truth is that they're going to be good either way. What happens? They get burned up. Where do they get to be? With God. God rescues them with the, from the fire. They get to be with God. They discovered God was with them in the fire. Now, this is important because this speaks about the nature of God's grace even to unrighteous rulers. It was the grace of God that Nebuchadnezzar got to see the fourth person in the fire. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're fine no matter what. No matter what the outcome, they're fine. It was the grace of God that Nebuchadnezzar got to see the fourth person in the fire. And he jumps up and he says, that's like one of the gods, which I'm sure he had never expected to see. And this is how kind God is, is that even to the oppressor, even to the oppressor, God grants grace and the shot at redemption. They, they didn't need to see God in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar needed to see God in the fire, right? Um, and uh, it begins to change his life. And so the last passage that I want to read is from chapter 3, verse 28. And I love this. He says, um, thank you so much. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar says, well... Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They defied the king's command, and they were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Good for Nebuchadnezzar. He's finally getting a clue. He's finally getting a clue. But you know, his journey has got a little bit further to go. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'll be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble because there's no other God who can rescue like this. So the good news is Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to get a clue. The bad news is, is that he's got a lot of living to unlearn. Guess what? The good news is I'm beginning to get a clue. And the bad news is I've got a lot of living to unlearn. I am, I mean, other than the fact that he was probably taller and more charismatic and richer and he was a king, Nebuchadnezzar is no different from me, right? And this is the deal. God's grace extends not only to the oppressed, but also to the oppressor. Uh, that was one of the really beautiful things about uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa uh, or uh, to Mahatma Gandhi in India or Dr. Martin Luther King in the United States. All of them said that we are, we are fighting for equality, but we are also fighting to set the oppressor free from the veil that is over their eyes. Do you know Dr. King constantly said, I would like white America to be set free from its, uh, from its blindness with respect to racial relationships. And Dr. King got it from Gandhi and, Dr. and Bez uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, Tutu, 
I can do this. Bishop Desmond Tutu got it from Jesus, right? Isn't it good that God will even extend his grace to the oppressors? So there you are. What's going to happen? King's going to do what king's going to do. God's kingdom people are called to do their stuff. And God, you can take it to the bank, God is going to be with us regardless of the outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's actions and Nebuchadnezzar's reactions are right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Wait, what? Another New Testament connection? Yeah, Jesus said it this way. He said, let your light so shine that other people will see what you do and what? Give glory to God in heaven. Isn't this amazing when the outsider sees what God's people do and the outsider is the one giving glory to God in the heavens? This is our calling as disciples. Um, one, one last great figure from history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against an oppressive megalomaniac leader responsible for the deaths of six million Jews and gay people and Roma people. I mean, that you know, you're talking about an oppressor, right? And Bonhoeffer simply said this. He said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Don't you love that? My life as a Christian should be so compelling that, that somebody else would look at it, and if they were a skeptic or, you know, outright unbeliever, or maybe they're agnostic, my life should be so compelling that they would begin to cast doubt on their doubts. It's a wonderful thing. And of course, Bonhoeffer, what was his outcome? Days before his prison was liberated by Allied soldiers, he was put to death for resisting. The outcome, my friends, is never certain, but the presence of God is always certain. God is with us, and we learn that from Daniel. But more importantly, it's not just learning, it's not just learning about history. It's, can I learn that in my life? Here's the prayer. Every time I face a fire, I mean, what, what would be my normal reaction? Here's my prayer. Get me out of here. There's my prayer. Get me out of here. And the mature disciple faces the fire and says, help me see God in this. Help me see God. Lift your eyes, whatever your fire is, and ask God to show you his presence in the fire. Will that do for Daniel 3? Let's ask our wonderful worship band. So unplugged are they today. Hey, unplugged worship band, come on back up. We're going to worship the Lord Jesus with one more song. And uh, then we probably have like some qualified ministry team person or persons uh, who would be willing to pray with you within your fire to pray that God's presence would be revealed. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of The Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at The Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.